right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Better You Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Maine, and I am very excited about this episode. This is episode seven, but before we jump into it, I do have a quick announcement. I had an idea for the podcast that I've decided I'm just going to run with and see how it goes, and that's that I want to include resources for like personal development, self-reflection, self-analysis, but not just from my perspective. So I am inviting you, whoever you are, to share your favorite book, quote, article, app, even another podcast that's helped you better understand yourself or life and why. So just record a short voice memo and email it to me at thebetteryoupodcast at gmail.com. It doesn't need to be anything elaborate. It can just be short and sweet. Like, my name is Casey and I loved the book ABC because it really helped me XYZ or something like that. So at the end of today's episode, we will have our first listener book recommendation and we'll just keep them going so that you can all have a whole variety of things to read or, or listen to um, to help you better understand yourself, which is ultimately the point of this podcast. So that brings me to today's episode, which is my first expert interview. So I really love this conversation and I hope you do too. Um, The interview is with Amy Pope Latham and she is a licensed clinical social worker with a lot of experience in treating children, adolescents, adults, and families. She got her undergraduate degree from um, Stony Brook University in psychology as well as a master's degree in social work from Stony Brook's School of Medicine and Social Welfare. She offers EMDR as well as trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and largely incorporates evidence-based practices and somatic and mindfulness-based therapy for a variety of presenting symptoms such as grief, anxiety, complex trauma, obsessive and compulsive thinking patterns, and substance abuse. And I love this conversation so much because it is essentially about the importance of our mind-body connection how certain experiences known as traumas can cause us to dissociate from our physical feelings, but how through therapy and even practicing mindfulness, we can become more aware of what our body is trying to tell us and give it the time it needs to process through events that our minds didn't allow it to. We talk a lot about um, what constitutes this trauma, how it affects us and our brains, and we look at one of the treatment therapies that's available to heal the, the negative impacts associated with trauma. So I really hope you enjoy it. Um, Stay tuned to the end where I will share my favorite takeaways from the conversation. And we will also hear our first book recommendation from a listener. Okay, enjoy. Okay, so we'll just kind of hop right in. Let's start with if you can kind of just give a little bit of who you are and a little bit of your kind of background and experience and like your current practice. Okay, so hi there. My name is Amy Pope Latham. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, originally from the great state of New York and uh, recently located to Jacksonville, Ponte Vedra Beach uh, in the last year and that's where I started my practice. It was really awesome to move. Um, previously, we were in Tallahassee for two years and working with kids, adults um, in substance abuse, trauma, athletes in the collegiate level, po- uh, professional elite athletes, um, working a lot with grief, anxiety, particularly trauma, and um, I love what I do now. I get to work with a variety of people, children, bigger kids, my even bigger kids who we call <laughs> our adults. Um, and it's so fascinating from a preventative standpoint when I'm working with kids, because they're the future, 
or just even allowing you know individuals in their mid 30s 40s to recognize that yes they may have gotten to this point where they've they've struggled they felt stuck but they have so much more life to live and giving them an outlet to do so where their life becomes more vivid and colorful it's been such an awesome experience um so yeah i'm happy to be here yes yeah. no i i love that and um you said one of the key words that i really kind of want to start with which is trauma because mm-hmm. i feel like i prior to like probably the past couple of years i would think of that word in in terms of like just very extreme mm-hmm. events and only recently as i started to kind of get a little bit more into like self-reflection and personal development and started to listen to a lot more mm-hmm. stuff and read a lot more stuff i'm like oh okay we all have some kind of childhood or I don't know, maybe even an adolescent and adult trauma experiences that then kind of mess with our psyche and essentially, or maybe like the stem of a lot of our issues that Mm -hmm. we struggle with as adults. And that word trauma doesn't necessarily mean, you know, abuse or neglect or anything extreme. It can be something that's seemingly very benign. So, so let's start with like trauma. Like what, what is it? And then like, what are all the different I guess, kind of forms that it can take? Trauma, essentially, the way I look at it, is any type of event that elicits a a physiological response. In other words, we're born with all the same genetic material. Our cells are basically, like, I like the word that you used, benign. Like, we're, that's where this nature versus nurture comes in. But at some point, our bodies are a blank canvas. And when we're exposed to something that we have no prior knowledge of, or how to even process it or identify or even just manage it, it affects us. It shifts the way we move forward from that point. So yes, trauma can be what we classify, and I don't necessarily like to call it big T, little T. You'll see that quite often um, on different resources. Uh, I know it's a very popular way to describe trauma, but I I tend to go outside of that uh, paradigm only because trauma is anything, again, that can cause a physiological shift in the way you respond to something. And that's where a lot of, you know, even in therapy and, and social work and, and as my program, and even other mental health programs, a main word that we get taught very early on is transference. And it's just how, when we have a previous experience, something about that can inform our further experience, our future experiences. Mm-hmm. So trauma can be also what didn't happen, what we didn't Ooh, experience. Okay. So largely what I work with uh, in terms of when I, when I introduce trauma, you know, I, I started to recognize that when I'm looking at this field within the field of mental health, you know, I don't, I try to look at the person as the whole person. Mm-hmm. So being trauma focused, um, a lot of times I notice people just because they are trauma informed doesn't mean they're trauma competent. Mm-hmm. So that way, that's how I essentially got into this. Well, trauma could be what didn't happen. Because I'm searching for the worst, the worst, the worst, what could have caused a the slightest shift? And that could be in, in when someone was crying or someone had a significant, um, you know, a, a terrible grade on an exam. What, what stopped them from going home and telling mom and dad? Or what was missing for them to feel like they could feel safe to tell someone? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, all right. That's, that's very interesting. So I, I immediately have like two questions. Yeah. First one is, how early or like how young can those traumas start to happen? And then I like how you put it that it's kind of this event we've never or something we've never experienced before. So I'm wondering, is that kind of the root of our like fear of the unknown or our issue with the unknown, which I feel like then kind of happens throughout our entire life? Hmm. 
I would say, I mean, to answer that almost immediately, you know, your and mine, like our fear responses, it still stems from our primitive, you know, genetic backgrounds of being way back when we lived in caves. Mm-hmm. I mean, without fear as a hesitance, it's, it's a safety mechanism. So if we weren't learning to be hesitant back in the day when we were living in caves and dwelling in little tribes, that, meant, that could have meant the difference between surviving and being someone's lunch. Okay, mm-hmm. yes. I've heard that um, kind of comparison before, and mm-hmm. now it's almost like we, we've we evolved to where we're physically not in that amount of danger, Correct. but I guess maybe mentally we haven't evolved as quickly, so we kind of transfer that fear of being eaten by a dinosaur or a saber-toothed tiger to like public speaking Correct. and stuff like that's more this day and age. Correct. Okay. Because that same system, your automatic nervous system, your central, I mean, it's this fight or flight. Whatever your body senses, I mean, we still have to remember that we're very primitive. Mm-hmm. In psychology, we'll call it your, your lizard brain. That's something that we essentially do not have control over. Almost like with your vagus nerve here in your dorsal ventral, your, your body is saying, okay, I'm, I'm detecting something. However, being in the 21st century, we have way more stimuli now and much more complex mechanisms to keep us safe. But we're still, we're still immune. We're not immune to mortality. Mm-hmm. So that's almost becomes our filter between, um, you know, fight, flight, and then freeze. But at the same time, um, you mentioned how early does this begin? You know, it's hard to really answer that, mostly because, you know, I've had people come in, and this has been so cool. This is what really um, made me appreciate the work I'm doing even more, is that I've had someone come in, and we were doing EMDR, which is, you know, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. It's therapy, and it was a a birth trauma. However, Mm. yeah, however, right? How do we, you know, how do we, like, vocalize or verbalize or say, say anything that, if a memory was nonverbal, we were at a stage in our life where we didn't speak. We didn't know what language was. Yeah. So did that person, like, remember that? Because don't we technically store every second of every moment in our brain? It's just a matter of what we can recall. Well, I will agree, and I'll add to that, you know, the body remembers Ah. what our mind tries to forget. Ooh, okay. Yes. Yes. So when, and the thing is that we're thinking about, we're, if we're nonverbal at a stage where language is not part of our development, we have no idea, that individual's trauma per se was a, um, a birth trauma where they started to notice a suffocation. And they said, I felt like there's something around my neck. And I feel like it's a cord. And this is going back. We go for the touchstone, which is the earliest memory in EMDR. Mm-hmm. So this is going back even earlier than two or three years old. And I, and I feel like I'm being pushed Ooh, yeah. Like there's like a shift and I'm noticing like they're, I, for those who are hearing this right now, my shoulder, they're kind of going up and down like a lean with a rock with it going up and down um, and kind of contorting their body, feeling the suffocation. And as it turns out, when they came back and were reflecting on this, they had told me when they asked their parents, there was the cord around, around their, neck. their neck. I was like, oh my, poof. wow. Okay. So that's really big and so really then that begs the question do we all have some level of trauma from our birthing experience because we're all either pushed out or kind of grabbed out suddenly Mm -hmm. from this safe super comfortable environment to Mm -hmm. this bright feels different noisy world Mm -hmm. so could we all have trauma from being born in some ways yes i mean think about even trauma to a woman a, a female's body yeah a major surgery from a C-section, you know, the tearing. I, I, mean, I don't have children, but I've had women come in postpartum and say they're they're still hurting 
and they have significant tears, like degrees down to, you know, their, their backsides. And that in itself, I mean, even a loss is a trauma. So the mm-hmm. loss of that, you know, identity as a pregnant per- individual or just a single person or a young married millennial, childless millennial. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's loss across the spectrum. And you think about this way, all I'm inviting us to do essentially is to think about how we try to categorize and stigmatize trauma. We've mm-hmm. all experienced it. And I think just to kind of segregate and say trauma, 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 you know, we've all had it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm concerned in a way, but also happy that we're putting it on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think the more we focus on the bigger, harsher, okay, we have to look for the obvious, the obvious, the obvious. We're still getting caught up in things that perhaps we haven't really even addressed within ourselves. Okay. All right. I, I kind of see that point. Yeah. So, because I think like in some way it's like you want to get to the root trauma as a way to maybe heal it or accept it, but you're kind of pointing out that maybe that's almost like feeding it more in which case we need to just kind of view trauma as almost like accept trauma as a part of life. Yes and no. Like, right, I agree. With, I hear what you're saying. It's almost as if we're just able to say, okay, well, this is what's happened to us, but it's shifting the lens from saying, oh, we're a victim mm-hmm. to really embracing our resiliency. Oh, okay. Yes. yes. Okay. I like that. So I, how, how do you go about like helping or how does somebody make that shift? Awareness. And one thing when people come in, it's like, can you help me with this? And I'm like, well, yes, but no, because at the same time, I'm, I'm not here, you know, not qualified, licensed or even trained to do a lobotomy, so I can't change who you are. Um, this is not an operation room. This is a you know a therapy room. You know, in other words, um, you, everyone in this world, we all have whatever we need in this exact moment to heal. Ah, I love that. I feel like I've said that <laughs> yeah. a bunch of times, and yeah. I, I'm not. I, I don't know. I just I just strongly believe that yes. I haven't yes. really been taught that. But that's, okay, but I love that's that. Fantastic, because it's true. When we think about when we get a cut. We break our leg. We yes, we'll nurse it. We'll put we'll put cast on it. We'll put a bandage on it. Why? Because we're just trying to get of our own way of healing. If we were to like you know expose it or still have like a, a limb that's exposed, we, I mean we could re-injure it and then hurt it even more, and that could obviously jeopardize our ability to I mean participate in the world. Okay, that is a good point. That our bodies are set up like we do heal ourselves Your physically. Body wants to heal. So yes. I imagine then our our mind or our brain or our psyche or spirit, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it does also. So what, all right, let's get into like a little bit of the science part of it. Like mm-hmm. what does a trauma like do to your brain? Oh, it's fun. Just kidding. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It changes. There are molecular changes in your brain. I mean, it, it's basically when we're, when we're learning something, think about when we're exercising, we're tearing the muscle fibers in our, our limbs because that's how we inspire growth. Same thing with our brain. When we're learning, we're creating more synapses, more fi- more basically in, in you know boxes, folders, if you want to call it that. Shape, different ways to categorize things. So what happens when we experience trauma? We're activating different parts of our brain, but the more primitive parts. You have your limbic system. Dan Siegel, he's done this really fun um, way to illustrate this, especially to children and teens. It's you know he he uses his little forearm, well my little forearm, and he says, okay, well your forearm represents your spine. Right, mm-hmm. and then when you cover your thumb with your other fingers, your thumb represents this is your emotion center, your limbic system, your hypothalamus, amygdala, all those basically the sorority group, fraternity group of emotions, fight or fight, f- fear responses. This is where this is kept private 
because your frontal cortex is the main processing hub that when we first get information, it filters it out. So just considering when something happens, we initially, we see it, but this is why it may take a, a minute or so for it to really wash over us like a tsunami. Mm -hmm. Think about the impact of a shopping event. Earlier, when we were talking about September 11th, mm -hmm. watching um, you know, a tower and mm -hmm. then seeing a tower get hit by another plane. People are just like, what's happening? If you ever see videos, people are walking around Manhattan saying, what's, what's going on? Like, kind of like, what's happening? Right, because it was almost like so unexpected that it takes a minute to, to process. Like, see it and process yes, it. Yes. Okay. And so only then, after a little bit, when we were able to pick up that, wait a second, something's not safe, then your body's like, okay, well, I need to do something right now to either make myself survive this, freeze from it, or run from it. Fight it, fight it, or just stay very still. Mm -hmm. And so that's why your, your body automatically shifts, but not so much. It's an intentional but non-intentional process. So that's what happens when your brain first experiences something, your body experiences it. It's like, wait a second, what is this? Where does this feel familiar from? Have I ever seen anything like this before? You know, your hippocampus gets involved and it's like, well, huh, how can I ascribe this to something? This must be familiar. Mm, no, okay. And well, I guess we're gonna have a moment we're gonna have to learn. So that's why you see almost a delayed response. I think about when, um, if there's ever been a moment in your life you were informed that someone had passed away, it may take a minute or so, or even a couple hours, for the magnitude of that loss to settle in. Yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced that. And then almost, I, I don't know, I feel good hearing that because I've almost been like, what's like, almost like what's wrong with me that I'm not like processing this immediately. But right. that makes like a lot more sense. And so that whole process of kind of taking something in and then kind of asking, all right, have I experienced this before? Mm -hmm. Is that where kind of, because I've heard before that we tend to analyze the present mm -hmm. and even... I guess, like worry or think about the future in terms of like a historical context of what we've been through. And yes. that's like our brain trying to like find all the patterns, Correct. which then kind of ties into how we maybe like reinforce mm -hmm. our own patterns. Correct. That's why I say we will tend to default to what we know. Okay. When we're given a situation, you know, there's a questionnaire in terms of my training um, and certification with EMDR, uh, the Personal Transformation Institute, her name is Deborah Kennard. Um, what I found so interesting, I was just encapsulated by it, was when she mentioned this answer. I'll show you here. It's, an, it's a series of questions that we want to figure out what you do really well. Because what you do really well also keeps you stuck. Um, so these questions here, one of them, if you've noticed, it says, in an emergency situation, what would you do? And it's so fun. I say it's fun because every person, including ourselves, because you know, in order to be trained and certified, we have to go through it ourselves. So it's fascinating in my experience um, helping my colleagues through this and doing it myself personally. Every time when you're asked those questions, you sit back, you take a moment, and you're trying to piece the puzzle back together and say, well, where, what would I do in that situation? You have to think of how many emergency situations you probably survived. So you're, you're taking all these pieces of information, defaulting to what you know, which might feel more safe. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. And so just so that everybody knows a little bit about what these questions are, mm -hmm. um, they're kind of like, what are you most proud of? What is difficult for you to do? What do you do when you're under stress? Um, how are you with deadlines? Do you cry easily? Mm -hmm. Do you cry in front of others? Is it easy for you to ask for help? So when we answer these, because these are, I mean, these are some very self-reflective questions. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like if I were to try and answer them, there's almost 
like a couple different answers. There's like what how I wish I was mm-hmm. or what I'm trying to be and then the truth. So I guess that kind of goes back into like how do we get in our own way versus like how much do we want to be a certain way but we're not being honest and if we're not being honest like how do we actually address it and then maybe that goes back to how we kind of like reinforce our or like you said what we're good at can keep us stuck Mm -hmm. and it's so it's fun because you know in this moment when you're when we're doing this component it's part of the history taking because there's eight phases in emdr so in a history taking i mean this is included which is not something that other um emdr trainings do but i love sharing resources with other providers in the community if anyone Mm -hmm. had ever asked you know, um, it doesn't hurt to offer this, even if you have no idea of a concept of the answer. Because, you know, different, she has used somatic interweaving into this type of EMDR therapy. And that's all that is. It's allowing you to go back and become comfortable with. Because when you are getting close to pain in an EMDR session, when we're targeting a very painful emotion, whatever you do really well is going to come up. Right. And it's so cool. So we want to predict. And that way, when it does show up and manifest, we're able to allow it to be here. And it's so fascinating that when your body just feels that it's okay to feel safe or whatever that means. Like if that, for that person, for example, some folks love to go outside of themselves. So for example, let's say we're processing a really traumatic event, um, a loss of a pet, which is serious trauma. Um, perhaps someone who is very limbic phobic, they're very afraid to access that limbic network. They would say, well, I'm noticing the clock getting really loud all of a sudden, or I'm noticing the trees. And as a facilitator in that example, I'd say, wow, just notice how quickly your body just came up and just did that for you to keep you safe. Right. Wow. Rather than sit with what you're feeling, it's like, let me focus on something that's outside of me. An appreciation yeah. of whatever it is that you've learned to keep you safe. It comes up even in a contained space like this and we allow it to be there. Okay. So, Cause that goes back to just our like almost like built-in survival mechanisms. Okay, so let's take a moment like and explain like what is EMDR. So I'm a little bit familiar with it, but for those who aren't. Oh, it's a therapy modality. Some people think, oh, it's a treatment, I can go in and blah, blah. There is a protocol that when we have natural disasters, crises, immediate crises, it can be very effective. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, I mean, there's superheroes out there who do that, and I have so much respect. I mean, tremendous admiration for the work that they do. They'll literally go to these places who have been depleted. Their resources have been depleted, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and sitting with people who have experienced sudden loss. It's so incredible. I call them first responders because they truly are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. I mean, there's, you know, they said that Francine Shapiro... Um, She passed away this year. Um, She was the pioneer in founding this therapy. And essentially what had happened, I'll summarize how she came to. She was walking around and her eyes were going and she was thinking of something. And she noticed that by these eye movements, there was a shift. And and long in the shores that we're here now where it's become such a really phenomenal vehicle for change and healing for people. Because you're allowing them to really go back to a memory, a painful experience, without re-traumatizing and allowing them to heal from it. Because when we're stuck on something, in other words, our brain is trying to make sense of an, uh, an idea or we're trying to figure something out. Or unfortunately in our culture, think about bereavement, we get seven days to quantify yeah. someone's life. Mm-hmm. Our, our whole society is based on moving on, moving on, moving forward, moving fast. That doesn't mean our brains and bodies can do the same. Mm-hmm. So what EMDR does is allows it to process through and to find a place where you're no longer really attached to that in, intense experience that it's really happening and it's still happening. 
but it just sits there. It's in other words, it's part of you, but it's not you. In other words, it's not, you're not living in that skin. It's just part of your memory. There's not the intensity that it still might be happening, recurring in the background. I almost say it's like having, you know, your iPhone when you you swipe up all the apps and there's that one that just won't, won't, you can't, you just can't get it to close no matter what you do. Mm. That's how trauma, a loss, a grief, anything that you've experienced can sit. Okay, so, but how does it, like, where does it tie in with the eye movement? Because I know it's mm-hmm. eye movement, desensitization, mm-hmm. and... Reprocessing. Reprocessing. So we're desensitizing. In other words, we're taking the intensity out of it. And so that's what people think, well, it's kind of like exposure therapy. Well, well yes, in a very um, unique way, because we're targeting your limbic system. You know, in exposure therapy, you're just gradually exposing and exposing until, you know, you're taking ugh, the fear out of something, but... In this situation, we're going back to a very deliberate moment in time. And what's so fascinating is what I love to do, and I've noticed my clients let up when this happens, particularly with more, um, I would say, very significant um, abuse. Um, I say, you know, you don't have to give me detail. As a matter of fact, I don't want to know the detail. You are welcome to share it with me. But if it means that that will flood and feel that you are re-experiencing your trauma, I don't I'm not here to harm. Mm-hmm. There's a big, big responsibility for nonviolence in this th- in this treatment because um, you can go outside of what we call the window of tolerance. And that just means when we're in this moment of extreme uh, well, flooding of emotion, we're just hit with all these different things going on at once, sadness, tightness in your chest, the lump in your throat, wanting to cry. Um, if you get to a point where it's too much, meaning it's just too much at one time, you can dissociate. Okay. So, so the, yeah, the eye. So this is where I'm just I'm going around it. So I'm going to go right back to the center of the core of this therapy. Is that when someone comes in, we're going down the pathways of what came up at a certain time or what way they feel limited, and we go back to an earliest, if not the earliest time they remember feeling a similar way. And we do this by identifying what's called. This is all the history taking part. So part one is history. So we'll go in and say, well. What's some way you're feeling limited? Okay, what would that say about you? And that's what we call your negative cognition or negative belief. And by using that, we'll go back and go and say, okay, well, how's this shown up here? And we'll say, okay, well, what's an earlier time you remember feeling this way? Okay, and how about an earlier time? This is not a standard therapy model where, you know, someone says, oh, this, this, and that, and they'll want to give you more detail. I say, okay, I just want headlines. Mm-hmm. When you're limbic. The one thing that could take you out of it just as quickly as getting into it are your words. So the more you think about something and you just you can get more detail, you will allow, allow yourself not to get into where you're really activated is what we call. Okay, is that yeah. why this is considered, because <clears throat> I, I read while kind of doing some research mm-hmm. before this interview that, you know, there's kind of the talk therapy, mm-hmm. which I guess is like top down, mm-hmm. and then there's more this not. somatic or therapy which deals with body sensations which is bottom up so it's like that's where your brain could come in Mm -hmm. and disrupt the like bottom up movement absolutely okay okay that makes sense all right so you take the history Mm -hmm. and when we find that touchstone and it's very collaborative because at some point it's really um this is where i always say you know the client patient is the consumer i hate that word but client patient is the expert of him or herself themselves um, this is where it does require us to come in as the clinician and the expert and say, okay, well, it sounds like this is a good point. Because if they can no longer recall, they might be able to, but you really don't want to force. You never want to force. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, this might be a good memory to start. Okay. So I'm going to show here. I have, um, 
what our pages look like. So see, like this is an example of how we go down and we find the history and we go down and you go as far as you need, you just keep going. This template is just like a, you write down, I literally just list one by one by one by one headlines of what someone has been. But if you're, if you're listening, these boxes are so small that you really, as I said, you do not want detail. You just want the headlines. Trusting that when you hear the headline, when your body hears that headline, when you think of it, it knows what it's been through. Yeah. So guys, this is literally saying like, find the targets getting to the root of the present issue. And then it has all these questions and where, um, I guess the therapist would write like Mm -hmm. different triggers Mm -hmm. and earliest memories and, and, and we, and then even like red flags. Mm -hmm. So that's so interesting because it's like a very, um, organized, like practical way to go about identifying like what our triggers are, which is something we all talk about now. Like now right. I think we're all a little bit more aware of the fact that we have these triggers, <laughs> right. but then I think the majority don't know, okay, what do I do with them? Right. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating too, because, you know, when I say fascinating, I love science. I love objective data for me. I mean, I being, I love medicine. That was my heart and soul. I, I tend to have, um, always been, well, if I I find that it's not evidence-based or something I can read through science data, report, research, I would be a little more shy. I know a lot of people have come in and initially been like, well, is this, is this like the movie Men in Black when you hold the flashlight and you just zap it and you wipe my memory? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, that'd be kind of cool though. But what I love about this at the same time is that that template of taking down all those, you know, those examples, those memories, those moments, it also offers a client that I love to give at the end when they technically graduate, they can see how far they've come. Mm-hmm. They hold on to that. People are like, well, because it sounds kind of hokey. I'm like, no, I, I would love for you to see that we're measuring. We're taking down, we're listing very specific moments in time. And when you process through, matter of fact, there may be, I've had the most um, so far in, my, in the career here that I've had, it's been six pages of memories. Just boom, 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 boom. And I just, I'm just listening. I, I, I never write in session, but what I do is when we're in EMDR, we're doing this specifically, I just list. And I tell clients very clearly, I'm like, yeah, what I'm gonna be doing is as your scribe, as your personal assistant, I'm just taking down exactly what you're saying and we're writing it down, the best handwriting that I can, so that when you leave, you're seeing how much that you've been able to pull through, but also how, probably how much you're only gonna touch three or four of these, if maybe five. So, okay, so how, um, all right, so I, I, I get that. It's kind of like you go memory, memory, and try and get to, like, the earliest mm-hmm. one. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening thinking, okay, I can't remember that far back. But I think it's more we don't spend the time to try and, and do that. So, like, how do you how do you, I guess, help people remember earlier than they think they can remember? Like, is it any kind of almost like a meditative type state or it's just... Like, do they close their eyes? Is there anything to help get them more, like, relaxed? Or, like, what does that look like? It's, it's fun because it's almost like you're, you're playing two steps forward, two steps back. In other words, you're trying to gently allow them to become activated in, within their limbic system. And that tends to come very easily where they're able to not necessarily remember, remember, because sometimes you may not, and that's mm-hmm. okay, because some memories are not verbal. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're just you're feeling them. Um, but when you find the right negative cognition, negative belief, something about when your body hears it, mm. it's like, oh, and you'll see the, the tears or something just shifts. I mean, part of what I love to do and in, in, in why I think even when I've done um, this through teletherapy, I don't really 
um, enjoy teletherapy as much because when we're in here, person to person, I become a very keen observer of who's sitting before me, and I notice there's a subtle shift. It's so fascinating. When you find it and it's right there, something within their system just, huh. Like they go, huh. It's so, it's like they're, take a step back, wow. And then you'll see maybe a slight shift in their, their cheek color. Mm-hmm. Or, I've noticed this is a big thing, people hold their breath. Mm-hmm. So when I notice they don't, they stop breathing as much. I know that they've hit something that was a little significant. We've hit a nerve. Mm-hmm. I want to stay with that. Yes, this is very activating when you're doing the history taking. And that's how, if you're able to allow the body to feel like, oh, there it is. It's, it has, if it's not the, um, the, the right, I don't like to say right. I like more of the cardio. Makes sense, doesn't make sense. Um, if it isn't necessarily the best negative cognition for them, you won't have those type of reactions. It's incredible that, you know, just by noticing the shifts, you're seeing the body in action. Mm-hmm. When if we're distracted by thoughts and thinking, we're not going to have that much of an impact. Like you see it, it's like a, a wave of emotion. People, you know, they wear their heart on their sleeve. You can tell when they become emotional. That's the type of intensity that I'm describing. Right. It's so powerful. Okay, so this is so interesting because I can't help but like think of myself <laughs> yeah. and that, and I, I think me probably like a lot of other people at some point in time must have become disassociated from a lot of my feelings from like a physical standpoint. And that's one of the things that I kind of notice and I've described myself a little bit as like mm. numb. And it's not, it's not that, you know, you feel bad. It's that you don't really feel. And actually it was, um, during my little hurricane party with my friends when we mm. evacuated, uh, my one friend, April kind of, she's like, Oh, you guys, I just got one of those like bubble up moments of just like pure happiness. Do you guys ever like know those? And I just remember the, I was like, uh, yeah, I've had that before. Not often though. Mm. And so I think we, we become, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I get what you're saying in terms of like, we were almost like blocking our, our, limbic system or holding all those emotions in so so you go through this history with somebody and you find maybe the the root or the Mm -hmm. the memory you want to deal with and so then what and then we go into phase three which is assessment and we that's where we take the specific target which we call targets and we'll go down and we'll so I, i invite people when they come in to either it's if they're visualizing being on an airplane or watching on a movie my younger folks will say watch on youtube or you're watching a tiktok <laughs> you know you're you're even on a train in europe but you're just watching it go by you're watching a scene go by and you want to pause in that one moment like what's a specific image and they'll, they'll people will give you that image mm-hmm. and then you ask them to you, know, you say what's the negative belief um or if it's still i'm not safe i'm unlovable they'll give you words like shame guilt and that's okay it's all part of again activation activation and what's the big biggest part here and this is where it becomes a little more objective is we asked to rate usually um i've noticed in our training uh and even during you know um, part of consultation which is the requirement for certification i initially would do um a a positive cognition and what i noticed is when i work with a lot of uh, individuals with anxiety or who are so good at staying up here and avoiding here. I see a lot of medical professionals actually, mm-hmm. and my athletes too, because they have to compartmentalize so, I mean, it's it's incredible, it's like another talent. But in order to, um, and I've noticed that when they were, when I would ask their positive cognition, they would get out of the limbic system. So it takes them out of it. So I go right to the SUD, which is like where, 
How upsetting does it feel to you on a scale of one to 10? Or when you hear these words, where does it hit you? What number? Or oftentimes with people who have anxiety, and it's been so awesome. Again, if I've had, I continuously have to shift my gears in the moment. Mm -hmm. You get, it's like a once in a lifetime experience every time someone's in here, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. So if someone's very um, limbic phobic, like I've said, they would be more prone to say, well, like a five or four, like underrated. Mm -hmm. So I say, okay, well, where, where does that, where do you feel that? And they'll go, well, in my, my chest maybe. Okay, well, if your your chest, if that feeling in your chest could speak to you right now in this moment, what would it, what would it feel? Mm -hmm. Heavy, sad, like you have. I'm like, okay, well, if those emotions, that part in that body, your your throat, or let's say you're, you know, you feel it in your jaw, if it could rate that moment for you right now, what would it give? And that's when you tend to find the truer disturbance. Right, because that's where you're you're taking more of that bottom up approach versus top down. Like, Correct. not what is your mind saying mm -hmm. it is, but what is your actual like your body saying Correct. that it is. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's usually where you'd find that's where it's like that sweet spot. If you ask very um, and resourcing is a powerful thing prior to all of this because when I have individuals come in and have no connection, I say your your mind and your thoughts, the thoughts are the language of your mind. Your feelings are the language of your body. Mm -hmm. People have come in who have been very disconnected, and I invite them through resourcing to become like the United Nations ambassador to themselves. So once they learn that they can communicate between these two, but still stay safe for however they feel to be living. I'm not here to change someone, but when they need to reprocess something, I invite them to become familiar with this language of their body. It really does affect in a great, great capacity how much they're able to really process because they're activating the worst part of what they feel. It's so fascinating. Okay, so kind of going back to what we are talking about earlier mm -hmm. that we are set up to be able to, like, heal ourselves mm -hmm. is kind of the point of, I guess, getting to that earliest memory or, like, almost, like, exposing that wound mm -hmm. so it can heal itself? Yes. Yes. Okay, I because love that. that earliest memory, that's why I say if that person had six pages, we probably only did four or five because they're linked. Mm -hmm. It affects the way perhaps we engage with our with our people in the world. It perhaps it affects the way we engage with ourselves. Some people, you know, when they're when they're young kids, um, there's a fantastic quote. I don't. I'm, I apologize. I, I don't have the individual's name to give them credit, but it's not mine. It's mm -hmm. funny yeah. out there. Um, there was I read she had mentioned that when a child um, learns up uh, grows up feeling afraid um, for their parents' safety and you know worrying about loving their parents they learn to not love themselves. So you have to consider if they're learning that it's not safe to love themselves, they can only love their parents or be afraid or something's gonna happen to them, that will greatly impact a large part of their life. Mm -hmm. Whether that be through social anxiety, um, introversion, fear, panic, perhaps codependency in relationships, we can go down the rabbit hole, but more or less because of the earliest experience, there are more unlikely have been shifts in the way they've navigated their world since. So, okay. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm conceptualizing it in my mind yeah. and it just really makes sense. So we have some kind of, we'll, we'll call it traumatic event. Mm -hmm. Um, and not saying there's anything wrong with the word trauma. Yes. Um, and then that almost kind of sets up how we view ourselves like within the world, which then is going to snowball like domino effect everything else right. so then when we wind up in therapy say in our mid-30s like I am mm -hmm. it's like you've got all the you've got to undo like all those or try and get to the first domino or the whatever knocked over like the first domino to 
Okay. Do you find like, is there a, a theme among most people? Like I'm kind of starting to almost assume that it usually comes down to some version of what you just said, like not feeling like we're lovable or we're worthy or we're safe. Like, Mm -hmm. are there common themes among like our root powerless, helpless, invisible? Mm. Um, I've seen a majority, I would say in the last three years, truly, um, I'm invisible. I don't matter. Um, I'm not safe. And, um, the invisibility is, you know, it's incredible because you have to consider in that moment, wherever they were or series of moments when they had to essentially just hold their breath to stay quiet or just try not to get in trouble to avoid whatever that might meant if they were themselves. Like you think of us as children, you know, I, I, I can't get enough of children now. Um, when they laugh, I say, it's like, I just want to bottle up and sell it because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's so, in- it's, it's a pleasure. And you think about the curiosity that a child has, you know, they're just have a beautiful uh, disposition to look out in the world. But when that's hindered in some way, learning and, you know, it's, it affects people just so greatly um, that if they're not feeling that they have to, you know, be themselves, who can they be? So invisible, a chameleon, um, kind of blend in. But what they're doing essentially in the biggest picture of it all is they're just avoiding their emotions. They don't feel important. They don't feel like they matter. So that's where we start to... I don't know, almost like put on our masks or kind of change mm-hmm. or morph who we are because we're seeking acceptance and connection. Connection. Uh, okay. You have to consider, right? Everything that we've done and we continue to do is so that we're not kicked out of the tribe. Ooh. Everything, including our own family systems. Can you imagine as a child um, just sitting there at home, whether it be four or five, I'm going to go four or five years old. And, you know, you do something that's so bad and you learn that it's so bad because you get screamed at or you witness mom and dad fighting or just something happens where it's okay, I, I'm, in, I'm in big trouble. We learn through the most our mistakes how to avoid doing those mistakes so we avoid punishment. So we avoid getting, you know, having mom and dad cut off their chain supply of love towards us. And it's, um, again, it's, it's really adaptive. That's why I say I, I look at what's strong in people rather than what's wrong. So anytime when you mention the words like, yeah, we have to go back in all these different moments and kind of, you know, all these different dominoes, that can feel really overpowering and overwhelming to someone coming in for therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be here forever. And usually my MO and someone comes in and says, no, as a matter of fact, I really don't want you in here forever. Um, I'm going to be in here aging. It doesn't serve a, serve me or any you any good being in here aging with me. I want you to live your <laughs> life. Um you know, it, and being that they have the, the freedom to do so, they have the liberty to do so. And that's why with memories being linked, even if it's like six pages, they're pretty much connected to this negative belief. But it all comes from adaptation. Mm-hmm. We want to figure out how we can stay connected. Yeah, I, I, I love that kind of going back to you saying like mm-hmm. we don't want to get kicked out of the tribe because yeah. that is a very, um, you know, probably like a basic instinct that that's in all of us and then I can't help but think okay so we want that connection but like connection is just such a fitting word in this conversation because you know we're kind of also talking about the connection between like our body and our mind Mm -hmm. so it's like if we're disconnected from ourselves I imagine that then inhibits us to be able to connect to others 
in a very um, genuine way. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So what does, um, going back to the EMDR, because mm-hmm. I'm just kind of fascinated by this. So where, where does the eye movement play into it? Like what is, do our eyes start to flutter? Do they move around? Like does it, is that some kind of indicator to you, the therapist, like what's going on with us? Like why is eye movement even in the name of it? Well, it's how Francine, when, she, when you move your eyes back and forth, it's activating that limbic network. If you think about it, if you've ever seen like in a movie or like on a screen, if someone's pretending or showing that they're reading something, you'll notice their eyes are moving. Mm-hmm. It's like a typewriter. We're encoding information. Uh, Our eyes are just very developed, enhanced, unique because we have different colored eyes. Scanners. So that's how we process them and get in all, think about all the billions of information that our brain is receiving right now in this moment through our eyes. So naturally, it's, you think about even right now as I'm talking, right, my eyes are moving because I'm going back into my memory trying to pull out my information. You know, there's been graphics I've seen on the Internet of like how you can, how you can tell when someone's lying based on the way their eyes are moving. It's right. fascinating. So the eyes moving back and forth, it's just a way to activate the limbic network. And so what we're doing is after I say, well, how disturbing does that feel? And they get a higher, I'd say about six or seven is pretty standard. It's not concrete. It's not in stone. Sometimes even if it's a five, we'll get there. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're really good at hiding in the limbic. We'll, we'll get there. But generally speaking, then I ask them, you know, where are you noticing this in your body? And then I just, I'd like you to focus or bring up that image where you're feeling in that body. And, you know, I ask them just to follow my fingers. Okay. So <laughs> you're leading the eye movement almost to, because like you said, it's a scanner to try and connect exactly. to that limbic system. Okay. I see. But sometimes I've noticed this too, is that, um, guilty of it myself in training I would just follow along and I would be like nope not doing it so what I invite people to do at certain times too if I've noticed that they'll u- they'll use this as a way to avoid activating limbic so instead of feeling they'll just start counting which is very del- it's a very cognitive deliberate act oh because yes. it's okay yeah because if they're watching your fingers or your hand like move back and forth but counting that's how you like stay in your mind mm-hmm. versus actually allow the eyes to eye movement to access the limbic system Correct. interesting it's a matter of fact we're so tricky right <laughs> like, it's so much fun because actually one of my favorite um techniques to even introduce to my teenagers particularly when there's like panic or anxiety i say give yourself a cognitive task in other words balance a book on your head um there's a big big thing on instagram now on the gram where you know you, you pose like a flamingo like you put one of your legs up balance on one leg Get, or look at a word search, my favorites, because what you're doing is, this is very, again, cognitive psychology. You're giving yourself a specific task to focus on. And by doing that, you are inhibiting, your brain is not really good. We're not good at multitasking. Right. We're just, we're not. Well, that's what, and I've had this conversation yeah. with a couple of people recently. Like, we actually can't do it. We're it's terrible. a lie. Like, we're, we're stuck at it. Instead, yeah. we're just bouncing back and forth uh-huh. between a couple things. That's what scares me nowadays, like, of people obviously texting on the road, because we're not doesn't matter how old we are and how much more developed our brains are because people are like, well, you know, brains aren't developed in 25. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. Your brain, we're not, we're not good at multitasking. There's, we try and we filter in so much at every moment, like even just the, the colors in this room, mm-hmm. the temperature. I mean, we're just doing so much that if you're given a, an emotional task and a cognitive task, a very specific oriented task, chances are you're not going to be able to, you're going to have to make a decision one or the other. Right. And most likely cognitive is going to win. Right. Yeah. Because it's safer. Correct. Correct. And so by doing that, they avoid activation, which is fine. So what I do at that moment, besides getting my arm to work out, I don't mind it. I just practice with a shake weight at home. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
But what I do is I'll say, well, do you feel comfortable? I always ask. It is so critical to ask. It's very, um, what's the word? Even though I am the clinical expert, mm-hmm. I am never the expert of someone. So before I do anything, even let's say, because I sit in one chair and they sit in the other chair, there's a table in between the two of us. I will sit on that table. I always ask. I don't just go and sit. Mm-hmm. Even before we get to these EMDR processing, history taking, I will practice with them, letting them know what it looks like, model it. Mm-hmm. So we understand mutually what's a good place. And so when I hold up my arm then, I go. I do what's called, well, let's let's kind of figure out where's the good spot. You want it to be, in terms of your fingers, you do like Girl Scout on or like two fingers mm-hmm. up. And you want it to be just a little uncomfortable. Like you want it to be close, but not to the point where like you're touching. Not where you're going to go cross-eyed, but just enough that you feel uncomfortable that someone else is in your space. Because if someone, let's say, they're, when, when we practice going over speed, you want it to be fast, but not to the point where they're like this. Because then, again, they're going to get lost. They're not going to be feeling. They're mm-hmm. going to be thinking, how the hell do I keep up? <laughs> right. So I guess is the point of finding like that sweet spot of how close your hand is to them and how fast mm-hmm. that, that, they're not, that they're not getting distracted Correct. in their head. Or really even have that kind of room to go off into your thoughts and right. think about other right. stuff. Okay, that But makes often, sense. too, and I've noticed that um, it still might be too much, meaning that it's just too much stimuli, I invite them to close their eyes. Mm. And as a matter of fact, um, that's just as powerful. Right, because yeah. they're not going to tap into the limbic system if they don't feel safe. Let's say someone comes in and we process something and they never want to come back in again. Mm-hmm. It could happen. So with that in mind, I'm okay because once you set the train off the track, it keeps going. On the track, not off the track. Oops, that could be a trauma. Yes. So all we're doing is we're we're putting the train on the track. We're giving it the fuel, the steam to say, okay, we're going to get it going, push it down like a grasshopper. Something in motion stays in motion and moving forward. Well, and kind of like going back to, you know, that, that we can heal mm-hmm. ourselves. So it's just almost like that recognizing, okay, like, there's a wound here that you've mm-hmm. been ignoring, but like here it is. Yes. Even if you never come back for another session, Correct. then that's when we maybe do the work on our own. It, whether we're aware of it or not, like mm-hmm. does it, can it happen on that level of like, just like a subconscious level of starting to kind of work through and process our stuff without actively trying to do it? You'll start to have more insight, awareness, dreams, because thing, things that have been using a Freudian word here, but it's in suppressed, you know, you're just keeping it in your, your body is like, okay, we let it go. We, well, we let it started. We started to let it unravel. I guess now I'm just going to give it a place to continue that it can keep traveling, you know, just keep going. So that, that might show up in different ways. I mean, there's, it's fun. I like to do little experiments with clients with permission, of course, where I say, here, you know what, if we can't do consistency because consistency, it's key. You want to keep doing it consistently and consistently until you're you're really getting down to zero twice and you're mm-hmm. completing your memories. But oftentimes, when not, I say, here, let's try two weeks because if you can't come in, it's fine. See what works, what doesn't work. And it's it's incredible the feedback I get because even let's say when they're not in here for two weeks, things happen, you know, life, travel, work, family, the feedback of what they're noticing, mm-hmm. it's so significant. I, I really, obviously with HIPAA, I can't, but it'd be so yeah. cool if they could share their stories because I it's just, it's such a unique experience that no one, I say this concretely, no one will have the same exact experience. Right. So when someone comes in and they're telling me all this different awareness and insight, it's like, am I talking to the same person? Like, this is so cool. Because they start to feel things differently. They start to shift. 
and you're and they see it and and I'm talking about people who have come in who are very very I've had some of the worst cases of anxiety in this last year of mm-hmm. people coming in and for them to again to, we've reprocessed we've started the train they take a bit of time because of scheduling conflict for them right they but they come back in I'm like oh my I wish I could record it was just so awesome yeah because things are moving that's the whole point things are moving things are moving and things are healing yes okay so um just to like almost shift gears a mm-hmm. little bit but not so much so like mindfulness and meditation like those are big words right now and kind of paying attention to how we feel and Mm -hmm. everything and so you just kind of mentioned that that awareness and like insight into yourself which is often talked about as one of the benefits of like mindfulness and meditation it can be a byproduct of awareness I guess of these root issues correct so so talk a little bit about why mindfulness is so important. And then also like can, without doing something like EMDR and kind of the, having the awareness of those earlier memories or those triggers or those, those root issues, just by starting to pri- practice mindfulness techniques, hmm. will we get there on our own? Um, that's hard to answer only because, you know, it's so... We're so uncertain of that. I think in many ways, yes, um, once someone's, you know, if someone comes in here and, or just in general, let's say someone's all going around, they're seeing a therapist, and they just, they start to have an awareness of something, wait a second, I'm going into therapy because I'm having panic attacks, but this person kind of helped me figure out and recognize that, well, this might actually be related to, uh, wow, like someone, I lost someone when I was, what, this could be all connected to it, of that awareness? The fact, again, that you've, that therapist has helped facilitate the connection mm-hmm. between the mind and the body that is already a vehicle to healing because again you know, there's a saying it's like name it to tame it so if you can start recognizing whoa this is where it's coming from there are definitely many facets within mental health therapy mindfulness hacks tricks etc yoga all these different techniques that can still allow you to feel like you're self-soothing but it may not necessarily um feel like you're you're targeting the issue if that makes sense. You've learned yeah. to live with it and say, okay, well, it's kind of what I have now. It's, imagine having, it's like our appendix. It's like, oh, well, I guess I've learned that it doesn't really do much for me now. Maybe process comes some stuff here and there, but we just learned to live with it. Yeah. And if it comes out, it has to come out. Yeah. <laughs> Mine came out. Mine burst. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm still glad you're, you're here. That's very dangerous. It's like, that's yeah. scary, right? But, I mean, also, too, it's like, think about it. We just learned to say, okay, it's here. Mm-hmm. We deal with it. The same thing of what our heart and our lungs do and everything that our organs do. We're, we're mindful, become more aware, like when we learn in school, what those functions are, and then we just we learn to live with it. And then we learn to listen to it. We respond to its pain. Yes. But it doesn't mean we actually, like, can fix it or, you know, we'll probably have to be informed to go say, well, okay, I'm still feeling this kind of come up. Mindfulness, it's, it's a very powerful vehicle um, into, I guess, resource meaning offer comfort as a, as a tool in your toolbox um but also allow you to feel more connected to self mm-hmm. nowadays it's, again it's like it's funny we have our technology our tools like we're so disconnected mm-hmm. so um there's a term that's been used i'm sure you've heard of this like being asleep um a lot of people they would be i've heard it's like they're generally we're all asleep if we're sucked into social media and this and that we become so disconnected from self how do we learn who we are mindfulness challenges that and say well guess what we're still here Mm-hmm. You're good. If you're feeling sad or anxious, like someone has like a billion likes and you only have like 20 likes, you're good. It doesn't mean that you failed. Any part of you that's hurting, you just send it love, mindfulness. 
So it's a powerful tool that can help us cope with things. Um, but also heal, but also allow us to know that we're still safe. Right. Yeah. So is the kind of the ultimate goal to, because I've kind of always viewed it as um, trying to get to those like, you know, root experiences or traumas so that you can like reframe them or undo them or heal them. But then now I'm wondering, is it really more just all about just being aware that they're there and like almost accepting them? Like what is, what is kind of the end goal result of identifying those like initial trauma events? We understand through where its root is, where its source is. So in other words, if we're able to understand where the fire or the bleed is coming from, we have options and tools to help heal that. Whether it be we have to manually go in, repair it through sutures, aka coming in for therapy, medication, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. or perhaps it just needs a band-aid or a tourniquet. Stop the hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. We're just given that opportunity to see, okay, well, wow, this is where this is coming from. And this is what's so beautiful about free choice, you know, um, self-efficacy, advocacy. You know, you're still your own person as the expert of you. It's up to you to decide. EMDR is not a one-size-fit-all. Absolutely not. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone comes in and like, oh, well, are you going to do EMDR? I mean, I don't do it on everyone. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, no. I, I, I feel like that would be pretty boring if you ask my personal opinion. I mean, there's so much variety in life. And, you know, to say this is a one-size year, I'm going to do it to you and you and you, I feel like it would become mechanical in many ways. Um, and part of the joy that I have in this experience as a therapist is I learn so much from people when they come in here, mm-hmm. as much as I hope that they can learn something from me. And um, to be able to honor that through different techniques, like cognitive behavioral therapy. So, and I sometimes I flip it on its head and say, okay, well, event happens, we have a feeling, and then you know our thoughts dictate how we respond. But I still stay true to the form, you know, something happens, we have a thought, feeling, and then we, you know, we direct our behavior towards that. Whatever melts someone's butter, you know, mindfulness regardless, even if it's a, you know, um, a skill that's more or less dialectal behavior in, in theory, like there's one where Miss um, Linehan found a DBT, I think it's the tip, it's like you're just tipping the scales on your body temperature. So, uh, for example, if someone is, you know, having a moment where they feel like they're spiraling, shock your system by putting something that's freezing on the back of your neck, inside your wrist, or just, like when we wash our face, mm-hmm. that cold water is like, oh, okay, I'll stop. Or like yeah, it's like it a reset. Yeah. yeah, someone like throws cold water and they're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So even though like different techniques can be uh, useful. So EMDR doesn't have to be um, saying, because there's a lot of people have come in too. And if it doesn't work, it always works. It can work when it's done right. <laughs> yeah. It always, because it, it, you can't fail at EMDR. Right. The clinician can fail the client though by mm-hmm. not keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that if they're not adequately prepared to understand what that would feel like, where resourcing mindfulness can be helpful, that somatic mind connection, mind-body connection, they can feel like, well, I'm not activated. It's just not for me. I'm broken. Oof. And I've had people come in, and that, that hurts my heart to hear because mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. I'm like, you're not broken. You're not broken. It can work. Unfortunately, you know, we're all on this little earth to learn. And to be fair, that person probably was okay, but maybe perhaps they just weren't at a point where they understood what you needed for safety. And that's okay. But let's try to work forward from that because you can heal. Mm-hmm. You're trying to. I think you've come in here and you want to give another shot. You've considered it or even don't want to sit. We're talking about it. They mentioned it for a reason. Let's entertain that for a second. Mm-hmm. But yes, um, even closure, because going into this, the fourth part and fifth part, that's when we do the eye movements, reprocessing, 
Fifth is the fifth stage is the installation where we take a memory. We want to get it down to zero. I will consistently ask in between, what are you noticing now? What are you noticing now? It's okay. So when you go back to the original memory on a scale from uh, zero to ten, where would you rate it? Until it's zero twice and it's ecologically sound. Mm -hmm. Then we go installation where, you know, when you look back, when you think of this moment and you feel yourself in this moment, what would you prefer to believe about yourself instead? We ins and we install the positive belief. And then I ask them, how true does that feel on a scale of one to seven? And we want to do seven twice. The last thing is we do a body scan, which is also very mindful. Mm -hmm. And at the end, closure. And that's, that's the story of EMDR. But you see the mindfulness in that sense, finding the root, you're still able to learn something about your awareness. It's such, that's the key to anything. So yeah. I, told, I, I tell my, my kids that come here, I see a lot of kids too, and I say, you know, right now, yes, you're sitting here as a 12, 13-year-old, that's fine, but even let's say they're doing fairly well, so you know, let's say you don't come in here ever again. I want you to take this away from our time together that no matter what someone tells you throughout the rest of your life, you are always going to be the expert of you. I, I yeah. love that so much, <laughs> and I only recently like heard that concept um, a couple weeks ago, and I just, I had never thought of that, yeah. but I, it, because it's almost a hard concept to believe because we carry so much, um, almost like awareness of what we don't know right. and guilt and shame regarding mistakes, right. but to kind of try and view yourself as the expert of you versus other people know better Correct. is, I mean, that's just a huge and difficult mental shift. Yes. Yes. And when I say it's like when with kids, when they hear that, they're like, really? I'm like, yes. No matter what someone tells you, even in my capacity, if I'm telling you something that doesn't feel right, doesn't sit right, doesn't sound right, that's okay. I am not here to tell you who you are. I'm not here to change who you are. You are here and we're just planting seeds. We're just allowing you to be, because you know, when kids come in and they tell me some behaviors that are, are what we as adults would be like, oh, okay, that's kind of um, concerning, mm -hmm. like manipulation, lying. I'm saying, how is that helpful for you? Because clearly it's helping. Right, there's like, a reason. Yeah, they're I have like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah. It's okay to say that in here? And I'm like, of course. It's obviously helping. I'm like, but that, how does it, I want to understand. I'm like, it's okay. I can't, I'm not here to, you know, to tell mom, dad what you're trying to explain. I'm just trying to understand. You, as I'm listening to learn from you. Right. And it's so cool. Well, and I love that because, I mean, we do that even as adults, mm -hmm. you know, and we label it like self-destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. But so instead to view it as like, what is the, what is the, the quote unquote good we're getting out of it. Like, right. why do we need to do that? Like, what need are we fulfilling with that? Like, that's just a, like a really interesting perspective. Um, okay. I want to, I, I want to end with a question on like, what advice would you give somebody that maybe recognizes they've got stuff they haven't processed as I'm sure like we all do, but there's at least some level of awareness there, but they are, hesitant to go into any kind of therapy mm. either because it's like maybe lives in kind of a pride camp of I can figure it out on my own or a fear camp of I know the work will be difficult and uncomfortable and I I don't want to do that and as I say this out loud I'm like probably describing myself <laughs> like what advice would you give them like of just a couple just one or two initial first steps they can take down that healing path even if it doesn't look like walking into a therapist's office first thing do the solid of looking up what we call the trans theoretical model of change Ooh, okay. or the process of change 
because there's several steps within um, you know, our mechanism of how we change or come to decide that we want to address a behavior or change a behavior. And we do this organically in, in most things that we experience in life. And so if you're ambivalent, hesitant, that's perfectly normal. That, as a matter of fact, that through trans theoretical model of change would validate that. Right, because it's just part of the like steps towards being ready to actually take action, and it's yes. a necessary mm-hmm. step. Yes. Okay. Oh, I love that. Yes, and I'm just why yes, like one or two. I would just be like, I, I would love to validate what you're feeling, the good, the bad, the uncertain. That's okay. I always start where someone's at. It doesn't matter what um, you know someone has going out there. The moment they come in here, I shut my door with them. I start where that person's at always. Mm-hmm. It's never my agenda. That's <laughs> why so I have all my tools on deck. But in general, um, they're, the only agenda these individuals should live by is their own. So if they're not there yet, that's okay. And when they do feel like they're ready, my hope, um, although it may take about five or six, which is the standard um, for when someone would probably find the, the best fit for them, um, is that when they do find their person, a therapist, mental health professional, maybe it's a life coach, whatever's going to meld their better, it would be um, it'd be a place where they truly can feel heard. Mm-hmm. And I'd wish them the best for finding their healing. So that's where we start to, I don't know, almost like put on our masks or kind of change mm-hmm. or morph who we are because we're seeking acceptance and... Connection. Connection. Uh, okay. You have to consider, right? Everything that we've done and we continue to do, is that we're not kicked out of the tribe. Tell everybody where they can find you, including like Instagram, because I love your Instagram handle. <laughs> <laughs> my Instagram is um, Coastal Beaches Therapy. Um, it's my business name. Um, I love it because it also means cognitive behavioral therapy. If you take <laughs> out the words and put the initials out there, it's a, you know, I like to have fun with what I do. I can also be found online, coastalbeachestherapy.com. Uh, Psychology Day would be Amy Pope Latham, LCSW. I can also be found, I guess, geographically in Florida (laughs) (laughs) and Jacksonville, but my office is located in Ponte Vedra Beach. And um, if you have any questions ever, regardless of where you are in the world, you are more than welcome to reach out. Um, I would not be able to provide any type of clinical advice, judgment. Um, As a matter of fact, therapists, we don't give advice. But Point being is that if you have any questions ever, you are not alone. And um, my hope is that if you do need someone to reach out to, you feel like you have one more person that you could reach out to if you needed it. So I'm here if you need or just want to say hi or give me a couple of likes on my Instagram stories. <laughs> just kidding. You don't have to. But be cool if you did. But cool. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank cool. you so much. Thank you so much, Casey. This is so much fun. Okay, thank you again to Amy for allowing me to come into her office on a Saturday, pretty much camp out on her floor and pick her brain about trauma and all things EMDR. I found it all super fascinating, but my favorite takeaways are how our bodies are set up to heal themselves and so too are our minds. And once that process starts, it can't be stopped. I found just a lot of, a lot of peace in that concept how there are different approaches to help reconnect our mind and our body and remove the continuous pain from trauma, EMDR being one of them, but it's not necessarily for everyone. So really the point is to find, as Amy said, whatever melts your butter. How EMDR is a tool to access our limbic system where we store and essentially hide our physical feelings and revisit and process traumatic experiences in a safe space. I love the explanation of bottom-up versus top-down approaches to therapy and healing and 
recognizing how tricky our minds can be and pretty much just getting in the way of our healing. How ultimately we all want true connection. And that's really the intention behind how we react to trauma. So in that lens, there's nothing quote unquote wrong with us. Our present day issues are really just a result of us doing what we had to do to feel safe at the time. How important it is to recognize that we are all in process and wherever you are in that process is exactly where you need to be. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely going to Google trans theoretical process for change because I just, I love that concept so much. And I know we talk about that a lot in the process and I think it's, or on the podcast, and I think it's important to keep that in mind for yourself, but other people as well. And the best quote of the interview by far, the body remembers what our mind tries to forget. I just absolutely love that. So thank you again for listening. I really hope that you found this information helpful and better understanding yourself and those around you. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you know when new episodes are available. And if you enjoyed this episode, then share it with others you think will connect to it or benefit from it. I'd very much appreciate a rating and a review on whatever app you are listening that helps the podcast so much in terms of discoverability and finding new listeners. And you can follow the podcast on Instagram at the better you podcast and send any feedback as well as your voice memo recording of your recommendation to the better you podcast at gmail.com. And you can find more about me, my book and my journey in general at my website, caseymain.com. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Hi, my name's April, and I love the book, The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. He's the author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, and this book was just so spot on. I was kind of feeling blah about my life and felt kind of stuck, like I wasn't really going anywhere. And this book, literally chapter by chapter, kind of helped me take actionable steps to get out of my funk. Um, the first chapter is called Take Responsibility. And um, I just love the whole book. It really helped motivate me and get me unstuck. It's perfect. So check out The Success Principles by Jack Canfield.